Well, I want to ask you a question this morning, and uh, think about it for just a second. The question is this, um, who would you choose to write your biography? Uh, if, you, if you were to think about all of those people that have had influence in your life, that know you, but you could only choose one, who would you choose to write your biography? Uh, some of you would choose your mom, because your mom knows that you have done no evil, at least she doesn't know about the evil that you've done. Uh, some of you would choose maybe your spouse. Some of you would not choose your ex-spouse. Uh, some of you would not choose your mother-in-law, or maybe you would. Who knows who you would choose? But here's what I can tell you is one person isn't going to be able to uh, envelope everything about your life because they only have one vantage point. But as you have other people speak to your life, you begin to see a, a different, more of a well-rounded bouquet of information about who you are, what you've done, what you did. And so it's very critical who writes our biography. Throughout the Old Testament, there were multiple authors telling the story of God, inspired by the Spirit of God to write the story of God's people and, and God chasing after those people. The ups and downs, the good and the bad, and definitely the ugly. And we end the Old Testament with 400 years of silence. Jesus now is born of a Virgin Mary, the divine Son of God, born as a human. Why? To erase misconceptions, to show us what real love is, to enable a very real, authentic relationship with the God of the cosmos, to make things right between God and man, and he shows up, and the New Testament begins with four biographies about Jesus uh, from four different vantage points. The Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, let me get it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four eyewitnesses that give description of the life and ministry of Jesus. Inspired by the Spirit of God to write what God had them write, they give different vantage points. And not only are they giving vantage points, but yet all coming together and saying the same thing, they have different audiences that they're speaking to. For example, Matthew spoke to the Jewish culture. And when you read the book of Matthew, you read that first chapter, and it's kind of a little overwhelming because it's all genealogy. This person begat this person begat this person, begat this person. They were the father of this person. And, then they, and you're like, why is that? Well, that's not wasted because Matthew's audience is a Jewish people and he is trying to describe for them the Messiah, the anointed one who they were looking for that would come and rule over Israel, bring them true freedom from captivity. And so Matthew starts by saying, hey, in order for the Messiah to really be the Messiah, he's got to come from a certain heritage. And he begins that whole process. Mark, on the other hand, he is a Jew writing to the, the Romans and in particular persecuted Christians within Rome. And he gives examples that the Jews wouldn't need. He gives examples like how far Jerusalem was from Bethlehem or how big the Sea of Galilee or just across this way to Samaria. If you were living in Jewish times, if you were living in Jerusalem, you didn't need to know that. So his audience is getting a geography lesson because he's writing to a different place. He's writing to the Christians in Rome. Luke is the only Gentile, non-Jew, out of the four authors. Matthew, Mark, and John were all Jews. Jews. They grew up in the Jewish culture. And Luke is a Gentile, and he writes to the Greeks. He's a physician. Uh, he writes to uh, the Greeks. He writes to the audience beyond the Jewish people. You and I are not Jewish uh, today. We are, we are what would be considered Gentiles, but we're really beyond Gentiles or Jew. We're Christ 
followers if you bow to knee to Jesus. And he not only writes the book of Luke, but he also writes the book of Acts. And Luke and Acts together makes up about 25% of your entire New Testament. Where we're going to land today and begin to unpack is in the book of John. And John really writes to everyone. And the reason why John writes the entire biography, his eyewitness account, his vantage point, his backstage pass, he, he wants to not only reveal who Jesus was, but he also wants to reveal that he is not just the Messiah, the anointed one, but, but that he is the son of God. That, that's, his, that's his goal. Because listen, in Jewish culture, they were waiting for a Messiah. They were innate, the word Messiah means the anointed one. That's the Hebrew word for the anointed one. The word Christ also means the anointed one, but it's a Greek word for that same thing. So when you say Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, you're saying Jesus the anointed one. And they were waiting for the anointed one to be the ruler and, and deliver them from captivity. But John goes further to say not only is he the Messiah, the anointed one, but the anointed one isn't just a prophet. It's not John, it's not Elijah, it's not Moses. The anointed one is, the, is God in the flesh. And as you begin to unroll the book of John, even the beginning, the way that John begins to start his book is, is kind of a tip of the hat or a nod to the Genesis account. Uh, to, to, you remember how the, the book of Genesis starts? In the beginning, God created the Xbox. No, yeah, heavens and the earth. Yeah, you got it. You got it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, we see as we unpack John how he begins with that same cadence and here's how it reads, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, that same time, in the beginning that God created the heaven and the earth, was the Word. Now the Word is considered the breath of God, the voice of God, the law of God. His Word, like, hey, my Word goes around here, right? Well, God's Word was not just spoken verbiage. It was, it was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. So what we're seeing is a personification of of the voice of God, a, pers a personal expression of the word of, of, of God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. John goes on to say that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, the personification of the law of God, the, the voice of God, the breath of God, the word of God, God in the flesh, Jesus is the word. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. What a, what a tragedy. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. Everybody say that with me together. To those who believed in his name. Good. He gave the right to become children of God. We are not just adopted children of God because we have two feet and a heartbeat and we, when we fog up a mirror when we breathe close to it. We are adopted children, sons and daughters of God when we choose to believe in his name. Now, this whole concept of believing, John really begins to anchor. He really begins to dive into that whole thought of believing. It's not just enough to kind of figure it out and kind of think about it and assume like believing is huge. In fact, one of the most popular scriptures in all of the Old and New Testament is John 3.16. And John pins, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Later in John 8, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you what? Believe that I am he. 
John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus told her, one of, the, one of the sisters of Lazarus who had been dead for four days, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And then finally, though, we really see in John chapter 20, John himself, if you haven't gotten it already, he says, this is the whole reason why I'm writing this book. And he says it like this, these are written, these scriptures, these stories, these words about Jesus are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but not just the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I started with the question on who would you want to write your biography, but let's get to the key question today. It's in your study notes, and would you write this down? Here's the question we need to answer today. Do I believe Jesus is who he says he is? Like, do I really believe he is who he says he is. Now, what I would say is many of us would say, yeah, I believe. But there's a little bit of a, of a different layer of belief that some of us might be living in. In fact, when you look up the word believe, you get two common definitions. And the first one is this, to accept something as true, to feel sure of the truth. Like, I know, I, I mean, I believe that I, can, that I can stand on this platform and it's going to hold my way. I believe it. I stand on it. I'm sure of the truth. The second definition is not so strong. It's, it, it's holding as an opinion, think or suppose. It's kind of like when you say, I believe the check is in the mail. Or I say, I believe we've met before. Now, I believe it, but I'm not quite, not quite sure. Did you take out the trash like I asked you to, Jeremy? I believe I took out the trash, baby doll. But I'm not quite for sure. Oh, I believe. Yes, I did. I am sure of it. No, I'm going to go check. And what I want to invite us to realize today is some of us are going in between these. Maybe there's been moments in your life where God is good, so your belief is good. And where life has thrown you a curveball and you're kind of thinking or want to think or want to believe, I just want to say to you, you're not alone. The scripture is full of men and women who were close to God, saw Jesus in the flesh, and still had struggles, still struggled to believe. And so what I want to do today is just talk a little bit about why you can believe he is who he says he is. You can. Or you can walk out of this room today and kind of be like, eh, whatever. But I hope that all of us will have a new, not only appreciation, but an urgency of really living the kind of life that is surrendered to truly believing Jesus is not only the anointed one, not only a great teacher, not only someone to follow, but the son of the living God. Because if he is who he says he is, your life ought to, ought to uh, uh, recognize that and be changed by that. Let's pray. Father, for the next few moments we have, would you speak clearly? Speak to us. God, we want to believe. Some of us may have had doubts. God, I know I'm not, I mean, I'm guilty. I, I've had my doubts. And there are people that were close to you, even your own disciples, that struggled with doubt. John the Baptist, who prepared the way of the Lord, he even had to send someone to you with a letter saying, are you really who you say you are? So God, we're in good company, even with John the Baptist. So Lord, today I pray that by the time we hear the word and we respond to it, we'll leave 
standing strong, believing that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. So in order for Jesus to be who he says he is, you can't just say you are, just show up in history and say, hey, I'm the Messiah, because a lot of people had done it already. There are all kinds of accounts in different oral traditions and in other books that say this guy showed up and said he was the Messiah. But just because you show up and say you're the Messiah doesn't mean you're the Messiah. There are specific key qualifications to be the Christ, to be the anointed one. And the key qualification is not just to like show up, right? The key qualification is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, what prophecy is, is basically a prediction of the future given by divine revelation. And so these prophets would would hear from God and would speak information about the future that was given to them, not by twiddling their thumbs, not by biting their bottom lip, not by giving their their best guess, but through divine revelation, they spoke of what the Messiah would look like, when he would come, where he would be born, what his life would look like, and what his death would look like. Over 350 messianic Messiah prophecies all throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus can't just come on the scene and say, hey, I'm the Messiah. They have to look back and say, well, if you are who you say you are, are you the fulfillment of these 350 prophecies? I don't have time. I, sometimes I preach like I have the time, but I don't have the time to give you all 350. But we're going to look at just a few today that Jesus fulfills. The first would be this. If you're going to be the Messiah, you got to come from the right family. You, you can't just show up and just be somebody. Like, like you've got to have proof. There's got to be a certain line you're from, tribe you're from, nation you're from, heritage that you have. And we see that through the Old Testament scriptures. The first would be you've got to be a descendant of Abraham. In other words, you have to be part of the Jewish culture. You have to be a, a born a Jew because you were born of, of Abraham. And we see that in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to bless those who bless you. He's talking to Abraham, God is. And whoever curses you, I'll curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples is way beyond the nation of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. It's all peoples, us today, that are blessed because of, even though we're not Jewish, we're blessed because of this prophecy. Not only would it be from the Abraham, but, but a descendant from the tribe of Judah. And we get this from the book of Genesis, chapter 49. The scepter, the the authority of the king, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now look, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac gave it to Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and the fourth son is the tribe of Judah. So you got to start getting particular if you're going to be the Messiah. You can't just come from Reuben or Simeon. You have to be from the line of Judah, and you have to be Jewish. And you can't come from Esau, which is a brother of Jacob, or you can't come from Joseph or Benjamin, which were uh, number 11 and 12 of the tribes. You have to be from the tribe of Judah, very specific. But not only do you have to be from the tribe of Judah, but then as that family tree begins to grow, you got to come from the line or the lineage of David, who was also Judean. You got to be related to King David, who was the second monarch of Israel. And we get this from Jeremiah chapter 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, when I'm going to rise up for David a righteous branch. 
The kingdom had already been torn in two. They were getting into captivity. They were, they were under attack all the time. The northern and southern kingdom were at war, civil war, but also outside war. It was just an absolute mess. And Jeremiah is saying, there's going to be a king who's going to reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is going to be his name, the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. They gave him the name Jesus, which means Savior, which means salvation has come. Got to have the right place. So you got to have the right family, and you don't get to choose. I know some of you wish you could choose the family you were born into. But you not only have to choose the right, you have to have the right family, you have to be born in the right place. I, 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 I'm going to guess that most babies don't get to choose where they were born. Most just going to guess. That's not their opportunity. That's not their obligation. It's mama's obligation. You, you have to be bo you're born a certain place according to your birth certificate. And in Micah chapter 5, hundreds of years before Jesus is born to Mary and Joseph, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will rule over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Now, Bethlehem was also the place where David came from. And it was a, literally a stone's throw, no pun intended, David thrown the stone Goliath. But it was a stone's throw from Jerusalem. And not only was Bethlehem the place where David is born and is the king over Israel, but then Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And here's some wonderful beauty of being born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the leading provider of the lambs for those that would go to temple sacrifice. And on their way to the temple, if they didn't have lambs that were spotless, they would, they would pick a lamb from Bethlehem and they would take the lamb to the temple. Not only that, but Bethlehem was known as the word means house of bread. And man, the bread of life comes from Bethlehem. The right family, the right place, and the right time. You got to be born in the right time of history according to prophecy. Now, a couple of years ago, I gave an illustration, and by the end of it, I felt like I had lost everybody. Because if there's a rule in speech giving or sermon prep or preaching, like don't, don't math people to death or don't do math in public. That's like an important thing because you just get off. But I'm going to do some math in public, and you're going to be forgiving, and you're going to get it this time. Sound good? I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully, we can get there together. In the book of Daniel... About 500 years before Jesus, Daniel gives this prophecy, and it has to do with a, with a timing on the anointed one. No one understand this. From the time the, world go, the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, in other words, all of the Jewish people were in captivity, and there was going to be a king that came and said, hey, you guys can go and restore Jerusalem now. You can leave here from being captive and go and, and, and rebuild your temple. From that time until the anointed one, the Christ, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So seven sevens and 62 sevens. Well, it'll be rebuilt with the streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, we already had the seven sevens, and then after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death. Interesting. 
They didn't quite put two and two together, but yet in prophecy, it's already said. They were just looking for an anointed one to come and restore Israel. They did not know at the time of the resurrection. In fact, it says in the book of John, they didn't realize that the, the Messiah would be killed and then resurrected. They didn't get that yet. They just thought the Messiah would come and restore order. They didn't realize there would even need to be a resurrection because all they were looking for was somebody who was an anointed man versus the son of the living God who could raise from the dead. They couldn't quite get it. So let's do some math. You got 62 sevens plus seven sevens equals how many sevens? 69 sevens. Very good. You guys are so sharp. Now let's look at it. 69 sevens. You take those 69 and you do seven years because those were representative of years. We see that because all throughout the Old Testament when there was that seven, it was a representation of, of years. And so 69 years times seven years is 483 years. So what Daniel is saying is 483 years from the time that Jerusalem is to be rebuilt to the time of the death of the Messiah, there would be 483 years between that time. Well, according to not only the Bible, but archaeology, in 444 B.C. is when Jerusalem was beginning to be rebuilt, where, where the Babylonian king let a group of people go back and begin to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And so if we take 444 B.C. and we add 483 years between now and today, 2018, we get to 39, A.D. 39, Okay. So A.D., the year of our Lord, 39. Now, we know that time was split from B.C. to A.D. when Christ is born. So B.C., now in new, in new language, trying to minimize the authority of Jesus in our schools, we, we will see B.C.E., okay, before common era. But B.C. doesn't stand for before common era. It means before Christ. That's what it stands for. And B.C., before Christ, we get to Christ is born, and then the time is now split, and we start counting towards one, two, three, four. What year, what year were you born? Five. <laughs> Eighty-five. Right? And so we see that Christ is born. But here's, here's the dilemma. We see that Christ started his ministry at 30 and was crucified roughly three to three and a half years later. And so that would put Christ dying at eighty thirty-three not AD 39. And so there's this challenge here of the, the timing. Is, is it right? Is Jesus just another one of those guys that said, I'm the Messiah? Well, let's look at a couple things here. Number one, our calendar is 365 days. All right? If you take 483 years and you add 300 times 365 days, you get 176,000 days. That's what puts it to AD 39. Okay, you still tracking with me so far? You're just smarter than the first service. That's just, that's just what it is. You're just smart. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Their calendar, though, the Jewish calendar didn't have 365 days. The Jewish calendar has 360 days. And because of 360 days, if you take 483 years times 360 days, you get 173,000. So how many years would that, where would that put? Well, wouldn't you know? That because of that calendar and because of the way they counted, it puts the death of the anointed one, whoever he may be, right there at 8033. See, even the timing of when he would die, Jesus had a plan. Jesus knew what he needed to do. And there was a spot in the timeline of history that he would come 
and fulfill these prophecies. And not only did he have to have the right family and the right birthplace and the right timing, he also had to die the right death. I mean, people die all the time. Crazy deaths, accidental deaths. You, you know the last words of a redneck is, here, hold my beer, watch this, you know. And you never know how that redneck's going to die. Trying to jump their four-wheeler off the barn. Jesus, he, he could not have orchestrated his death the way that prophecy, because he was not in charge of his own death. But because it was written, Jesus fulfilled it to the T. Why? Because he is who he says he is. But look at this. The prophecies way back in the day said that he would be, the Messiah would be betrayed. Not just die, but be betrayed. In fact, Psalm 41, there's this messianic prophecy. Even my close friends, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. And on the day of the Last Supper, Judas, who dipped his own bread in the same bowl as Jesus dipped his bread, he betrayed Jesus. The prophecy said he would be betrayed for the price of a slave. Not just, not just uh, crucified, not just taken into captivity, not just you know, a rock thrown on top of his head, but he'd be betrayed for a specific price. And Matthew 27 replays the story for us that when Judas, who betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. The chief priests and the elders were the ones who wanted him killed. They were shaken up, hit their whole structure of obedience to the law and following them and their own clout and their own authority in the Jewish uh, culture. They didn't like what Jesus was doing. They, he was causing trouble for their whole, uh, their whole setup. Their whole org chart was in trouble because of Jesus. And he returns the 30 pieces of silver. He says, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. And I love these guys who are trying to follow the law and be the religious leaders of the day. Who cares? What do we care that you betrayed innocent blood? What's that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. I, I kind of feel like Judas, we, we forget the guilt. We forget the guilt that he felt. He went away and he hanged himself. Now the chief priest, now look at this. And if you don't get this, your getter is broken, okay? You got to get this. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, well, <laughs> it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. They're the ones that made it blood money. And they're trying to follow the law. They just tried to hire a hitman. They paid this guy off to, to condemn their own friend. And they're worried about following the law. How many people get stuck on that? I mean, they're trying to follow church ought to look like that, but they live with such a, a criticism and a gossipy spirit, and they, the fruit of the spirit isn't alive in their lives, and, 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 and they're, they're so demanding of everybody else, and yet their own life is like the chief priest who can't see the, the sequoia tree hanging out of their own eye, and they're looking at the speck in someone else's eye. It's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So here's what the chief priests, who were trying to convince everybody that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, here's what they do. They decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. And that's why it would have been called the field of blood to this day. But by doing that very action, the people who were trying to convince the Jewish culture that Jesus was not the Messiah 
What was spoken to Jeremiah the prophet was actually fulfilled. So by doing what they did, they, without even knowing it, fulfilled prophecy. And they said, they, the, the, in Jeremiah, hundreds of years earlier, they took 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Even the guys that were against him couldn't lift up a hand and stop the Messiah from being who he said he was. And they were, they were literally hell-bent to try and get this to be done, to discredit Jesus. And yet they contributed to him fulfilling prophecy. Is that not good? Jesus is who he says he is, everybody. The prophecy spoke specifically concerning his death. Now, you, you, this, this looks familiar. We've, we, we know this statement. If you've been in church for any amount of time, this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Someone was on the cross and said that. Who was it? Jesus. Jesus gave this quote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some don't realize, though, that this isn't the first time that those words are uttered. This is actually Jesus quoting Scripture. In Psalm 22, verse 1, David begins a psalm by using the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A thousand years before Jesus shows up, David pins this. And look, check this out even further. It wasn't until 500 B.C., 500 years after David, that crucifixion was even a way of torture. Crucifixion wouldn't be happening in the time of Israel and King David. It was invented by the Romans as they began to occupy and they used crucifixion. So when David begins to pin this messianic prophecy, he doesn't even necessarily know what he's writing. He, he doesn't necessarily know that he's writing about the Messiah. He's probably writing more about himself. Yet listen to the words he writes a thousand years before the cross. They pierce my hands and my feet. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusted the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And if you remember at the cross when Jesus was carrying his cross and he's hung there, they mocked him. They laugh, oh, why don't, why don't you ask the angels to come down and, and, and rescue you if you are who you say you are? The psalm in Psalm 22 goes on to say, my mouth is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And those things were happening to Jesus. He thirsted and he was laid in the dust. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments, written a thousand years before. And yet they cast lots and they, 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 they did this whole thing of who would get the garments of Jesus. Finally, Psalm 22, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. And when the spear pierces the side of Jesus, the Bible says blood and water flowed. And the medical reality of that is a burst heart that would mix the fluids together that would look like blood and water, sounds like a heart that would be melting like wax. A thousand years before he ever died, 500 years before crucifixion was even a thing, Jesus is who he says he is. But you know, beyond his death, Jesus lived the right life. I mean, he died a certain death, but he lived a certain life. 
And there have been all kinds of people that have said, hey, I'm the Messiah. No, I'm the Messiah. People showed up before Jesus, after Jesus, even recently in the last 50 years in Jewish culture have shown up. And people have followed that rabbi saying, I think he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. Because the Jewish people have not claimed Jesus as the true Messiah. And they're still looking. They're still looking for someone to fulfill all the prophecies. And yet he's fulfilled them. He is who he says he is. But he had to have the right life. And, you know, when Jesus shows up, he doesn't just kind of live and have good things to say. There's this healing in his hand. There's this miracle power. There's this divine anointing. And when you see he shows up at the very first miracle, he shows up to wedding. Is that a coincidence? No, because he's the bridegroom and you're the bride. And he starts this whole thing of miracles in the book of John, not by trying to show us the importance of turning H2O to Merlot. That was a pretty neat deal. That was pretty neat. But it wasn't about the water into wine. That whole miracle wasn't about the water or the wine. You know what that miracle was about? It was actually about the washing pots that held the water. Because the Bible says that there were six ceremonial washing jars. He said, fill them to the brim. And they filled those jars to the brim and they began to dip the ladle. And when they dipped the ladle and poured it out, it turned into wine. What's the significance here? It's not water to wine, everybody. The significance is the washing pot. That for all this time, they had created these mechanisms on how to get clean before God. And so Jews, to get prepared for a holy moment or to go to sacrifice or or, or be prepared to eat and pray, they would wash themselves, cleansing themselves, what they could do to make themselves clean. And Jesus shows up and says, "Mm -mm, I'm, I'm, I'm turning it. It's not what you could do to wash yourself from the outside in. And he turns water into wine and he shows us that I'm here. I'm the cleansing agent. I I am the ceremonial washing pot. I'm the one who will be poured out. And I'm not going to clean you from the outside in. I actually clean you from the inside out. Churches have been built on people trying to clean people from the outside in. If you stop doing this, if you start doing that, if you will make sure you don't ever go watch a movie and only listen to music that has, you know, written by Stephen Curtis Chapman. It's all about the outside in. And Jesus says, huh, I cleanse you from the inside out. I'm the wine. That's the story. He feeds 5,000 people on a hillside. Are those the only hungry people in Jerusalem? No, there's tons hungry. There's people starving and dying that Jesus didn't give bread to. But in that moment, it's not about the miracle of the food. Later, he says, it's not about the bread. I'm the bread. I'm the bread of life. And you're looking for a temporary physical fix of bread. You're following me, he says to this crowd, because I fed you yesterday. And what I'm trying to say to you is I'm going to feed you from the inside out. I'm the bread of life. He spits in the dirt and he makes some kind of facial scrub. It's like a divine microdermabrasion. And he places this paste on a dead man, on on a blind man's eyes. Is he the only blind man in the city? No. In fact, we get so stuck on the miracles, and then we think because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us and will quicken our mortal bodies, 
we all of a sudden become thinking that we're like these, these miracle agents. And yes, God can still work and does still work miracles. But he was never there to perform miracles for us to look at miracles. It was always miracles to show us he is who he says he is. The miracle is the, is the sign. It is not the destination. And so when we're wanting to so see miracles, we can create the momentary supernatural uh, encounter with God as the miracle. But the miracle is that I've encountered Jesus. Jesus is the destination to the miracle. And he puts the paste on the blind man's eyes and he sees and he says, yeah, yeah, he sees, but it's not about a blind man seeing. I'm the light of the world. I'm the light. I invade darkness and darkness can't even exist when I'm around. Two grieving sisters whose brother had been dead for four days. He's in a graveyard full of other dead people. Lazarus ain't the only dead guy there. But why does he say Lazarus come forth? Not just so Lazarus comes alive, because guess what? Lazarus still died eventually. He still, he still died. But he shows him why. Not so Lazarus lives, but hey, I'm the resurrection. And all throughout the Gospels, the biographies, the vantage point of who Jesus says he was and who Jesus actually was and is, he's been saying the same thing. He's been answering the same question that even Moses asked and you and I asked. And when Moses was on holy ground and his sandals were thrown aside and the burning bush and God speaking through this imagery, he's saying, Moses, you're going to deliver my people out of captivity. He says, who, who should I tell them that sent me? Who should I tell them that you are? And God, in only the way God can says, you tell them, I am. Who, who, what's your name? I am is my name. You're your hope, I am. Your help, I am. Your God, I am. Uh, you're, you're the bread, I am. I am. And even Jesus, as he stands before his accusers, who are you? I am the way, the truth, and the life. A lot of people asking, what's the point of life? Jesus. He's the point of life. What's the point of church? Jesus. Is. What's the point of the Bible? <laughs> Jesus. He's the point. It's the, the point. Do you need hope? Jesus gives hope. You need a better marriage? Fall in love with Jesus more, and you'll be a better husband, guys. Fall in love. Honor your husband, ladies, like, like, like Jesus loves and Jesus shows us honor and you'll be a better spouse baby doll I want to love Jesus more because I love you and I want to be a better example and loving you harder isn't necessarily going to make me a better person but if I love Jesus more it's going to make me a better husband I mean you looking for purpose before you were knit in your mother's womb I knew you he says the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, divinely inspired through the Spirit of God, he says, God, be, you, he had designs on you for glorious living. You are not an accident. What happens after you die? Well, Jesus ascended into heaven, and he's been preparing a place for you. You don't prepare it. There's nothing you could ever do to earn it or prepare it or, 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 or fix it. He prepares the place for you. 
So you want to know what happens you have to die? Get close to Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words. Trust in Jesus. Not, don't lean on your own understanding. You'll get the answer to that question. Do you need a good friend? <laughs> Jesus sticks closer than a brother. You looking to make a comeback? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He's not done with his story. And you know what? He loves a great underdog story. The story of the Bible is full of idiots. And I are one. It's full of dysfunctional, crazy people who God says, I see past who you are to who you can become. You want to be a good person? I'll tell you what, Jesus was a good person. And he won't just make you a good person. He can make you live godly life. Don't settle for good. Settle for God. To follow God. That's good. You struggle with bad thoughts. Jesus says, hey, take those captive and make them obedient to me. Give them to me. Let me help you with your thoughts. I'm going to actually, I will transform you by the renewing of the way you think about stuff. Are you stressed? Jesus sweat droplets of blood before the cross. He knows what it's like to be a little stressed out. He says, I know how you feel. Are you tired? Jesus was consumed by crowds to the point where he was sawing logs in the bottom of a boat when the, when the storm was brewing around the disciples. And they even said to him, they had the audacity, but the reality to say, do you care? Do you care that we're about ready to drown? He knows what being tired is all about. He came to earth not just as God, but took on the very form of a servant so that you could know that he knows what you go through. Do, do, do you want to make a difference? There is no other person on the stage of human history that changed history like Jesus himself. He never painted a painting, but there are more works of art dedicated to Jesus and the word of God than any other topic in the world. Jesus never wrote a song, but there are more songs dedicated to Jesus and what he does, Jesus and who he is, than any other topic in the world. Jesus never built a building, but there are more buildings dedicated in the name of Jesus than any other architecture known to man. Jesus never wrote a book. His spirit divinely inspired the word of God, but he never wrote a book. Yet there are more books written about following Jesus and living for Jesus and the Jesus-filled life than any other topic. Jesus never traveled far from home, no more than about 35 miles from Jerusalem. Yet across the sea on every continent, people say the name of Jesus 2,000 some years later because he made a difference. You want to make a difference? Follow Jesus. You'll make a difference. You want to help others? Jesus <laughs> took the very nature of a servant to help. Are you looking for love? Oh, friends, Jesus is So the question today, do I believe Jesus is who he says he is? Yes, I do. I do. And sometimes my actions speak louder than my words. Sometimes the way I worry about stuff questions whether I really believe that he holds the world in his hands. Sometimes the way I get frustrated over life circumstances sometimes says I don't believe as strong as I should. 
Sometimes when I worry about things that are out of my control, it's like I become, I become atheistic in my viewpoint because is God not God? Did he not send his own son? And I have struggled with doubts and, and struggled with, oh, I want to believe, and it's hard to believe when I don't see what I want to see. And maybe you've done the same. Even doubting Thomas, he shows up to doubting Thomas who is having a hard time believing he was who he says he was. And he says, I'm going to get close enough to you to show you my wounds, my scars, the, 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 the place where blood and water flowed, buddy. He'll give you what you need. He'll give you what you need. And to all of us, blessed are those who believe even when you can't see. So if I believe Jesus is who he says he is, listen, it means i got to learn to walk in Christ-like convictions, conduct, and character. Because if you just believe he is who he says he is, but you don't live like he is who he says he is, it's not really believing. It's not really believing. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He will either be, he was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Either he was a liar and we've made all this up and he was just lying about being the son of God. And we kind of do this to kind of feel good and we've made our own kind of situational ethics to kind of keep us in line and kind of keep people doing what they're doing. And we handed it down from generation to generation. And this is just kind of more of a, of a study in, 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 in social, social actions versus divine revelation of a God who became flesh. He's, he's a lunatic, meaning he's crazy. He, he, could he have been a like a cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs? Let, listen, I've been a pastor for a while. I have met some loony Christians. Like cuckoo Christians, okay? Like cray-cray Christians. And so either he's a liar or this is just crazy what we're doing. Or he is Lord. He is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, whether we do it on this side of eternity or the other, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Don't wait for the other side. Choose it today. believe this sermon is, is pregnant with change. And what I mean by that is there's some of you, some of us, you have been going through the motions and it's time to stop. It's time to draw a line in the sand say from this day forward, July 15th, 2018, I'm going to believe that he is who he says he is. More than my own emotions, more than my own hormones, more than what my friends said, more than what I read on Facebook, I'm going to believe he is and let the cards fall where they may. Let my life become whatever it may, but I surrender, not just some, not just a bit, not just Sundays. I surrender all to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed.
let me address two people in the room. Those of you watching online there at Dieball, right here at the Lufkin location. If you have not truly dove in, you haven't jumped into believing he is who he says he is, but today it's time and you're ready. You say, Pastor, I'm ready to believe. This isn't just church. This isn't just a Bible story. This isn't just good living. I believe he is who he says he is. And I want to model my life after his convictions, conduct, and character. Maybe you're going to say, I want this for the very first time in my life. Or maybe you've drifted and you want to re-up. If that's you, with no hesitation, put a hand right up in the air. It's time. I'm ready to believe. I'm ready to believe. I'm ready to believe. No more, no more gimmicks. No more halfway. No more lukewarm. No more kind of figuring it out on my own. I kind of my own version. I'm going to believe he is who he says he is. You can put your hands down. In your own words, you say, Jesus, I believe. I believe in you. You're the son of the living God. You're not just a good teacher. You're not just a good storyteller. You're not just a character in a book that some people question. But I believe you are the divine son of the living God. And I don't even know what my life is going to look like. But I'm going to surrender to you. I'm going to surrender to what you say is best. I'm going to surrender what you say is right. I'm going to surrender to what you say is next. And I receive it into my life. Help me, Lord, I to overcome my doubts and to trust you. Thank you for saving me and giving me a next chance and for giving this moment to declare I believe in you. If you're here in the second group, you're saying, I've struggled with doubts and my believing kind of being that, I suppose I kind of believe, but I want to strengthen my resolve today. I'm declaring a strengthened resolve in the name of Jesus for my life. If that's you, put a hand up in the air. Me too. Jesus, today we resolve that we will know you, that we will know you better, that we will not just read the Bible to get through the Bible, but we will read the word of God for the word of God to get through us. And the word of God became flesh in you Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being who you say you are. And I know many of us have had moms and dads and spouses and brothers and sisters and friends who have not been who they said they were. Because of that, it's caused us to question. It's caused us to become cynical. God, I know that there are those in the room that have prayed for you to do something a certain way, and it didn't turn out that way. And because of that, it's been hard to believe you are who you say you are. But today, we're turning a corner. We're going to surrender all, not just some, and say, you are the Son of God. And we will live in that truth. We will love in that truth. We will rest in that truth. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, the strong son of God. Everybody said amen.